0: O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out. For their wickedness, the Lord our God will wipe them out. So ends today's reading.
1: Lord, I pray you would bless now this preaching of your holy word. I thank you that you are a faithful God who speaks into the realities of hard things. And so I pray that this morning you would give us a particularly attentive mind and a keen ear to listen, to understand, and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I, I asked Morgan to share her, her testimony, church, this morning because I am convinced that uh, much in the gr- of the grief and confusion that she felt in those brothels in Bolivia uh, parallels the dilemma in Psalm 94, namely, Lord, why do you allow injustice to prevail? It's horribly wrong for men to treat women like cattle. <coughs> abusing their bodies for the sake of an immoral and selfish pleasure, something deep inside of us, I think whether you're a Christian or not, in many cases screams that, The world is not supposed to be that way. And rightly so. If you look at verse three, that is precisely how the unnamed psalmist feels. Listen to what he says. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? He's identifying with what Morgan was talking about. It's incredibly difficult to watch evil and wickedness endure undiminished and unpunished. And yet, if your eyes are open to the reality of the world we live in, that is precisely what happens, friends, over and over and over again. Br- brutal regimes allow their people to die from starvation. Sexual predators intimidate their victims into silence. Unwanted children are killed in their mother's wombs and men and women are forced into slavery simply because they were born into the wrong tribe. I'm just scratching the surface of injustice. And many times it seems like the people of God are the ones who suffer the most. You know, think of how Christians are, are beaten and killed in Somalia or Afghanistan and North Korea. It's, it's painful to witness injustice around the world. And it's no less painful when it hits close to home. So your spouse files for divorce and spreads all manner of lies about you in court. You're mocked because of your Christian faith or the color of your skin. Or perhaps you're sexually harassed at your workplace. If you live long enough there's a good chance friend that you will experience significant injustice of one form or another so much so that i would argue this morning that the right question is not if anyone in here will experience injustice but what you will do how you will respond when it happens that's the question and that's that's why we need psalms like psalm 94 because that question is especially difficult how will you respond when injustice doesn't go away quickly. Listen to these words from Martin Luther King Jr. He explains here his response to the prolonged suffering of racial injustice and why he never lost heart, though it never went away. Those of us who call the name of Jesus Christ find something at the center of our faith which forever reminds us that God is on the side of truth and justice. Good Friday may occupy the throne for a day, but ultimately it gives way to the triumph of Easter. Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but that same Christ arose and split history into A.D. and B.C., so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. There is something in the universe which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying, truth crushed to earth will rise again. What do you think of that? You can applaud. That's totally appropriate, Charlie. <laughs> do you think he's Right? Is there something in the universe, something that lies, as Dr. King said, at the center of our faith as Christians that ensures the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice? Well, Psalm 94 answers that question, friend, with a resounding yes. Resounding yes. And it does so from the very first line of verse 1. Look there with me. Oh, Lord God of Vengeance. When the psalmist addresses the Lord as the God of Vengeance, he is proclaiming in no uncertain terms that because God is just in all his ways, that he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He will personally avenge every sin, every evil, every wickedness and injustice ever committed from the foundation of the world and for that reason and that reason alone church the moral arc of the universe doesn't just bend toward justice it culminates in justice because the universe was created by a god of justice it is presently governed by a god of justice and the universe will ultimately serve to magnify the glory of his justice The vengeance of God is sadly often decried as the territory of angry fundamentalist type preachers. And perhaps as you hear me read these words, you're thinking, oh no, one of them guys. I think Psalm 94 begs to differ with you, friend, because rightly understood applied, the vengeance of God is not just the foundation of the moral universe, but it's also one of the most comforting and freeing doctrines in the entire Bible because it, it grounds the biblical answer to this question. This question, how do we respond to the acts of injustice committed against us and the people we love? How do we respond to that? Well, Psalm 94 answers that question in this way, namely... In the face of grave injustice, take refuge in the justice of God. The God of justice. For his righteous judgment will prevail. It's the point of Psalm 94. In the face of grave injustice, take refuge in the God of justice. For his righteous judgments will prevail. And thankfully this psalm doesn't just say to us, go do that. It shows us how to do that. And at least four ways. So I'm going to move pretty quickly through the first three. And we're going to linger on the fourth. Okay? Each one of these points answers the questions, how do we respond to acts of injustice committed against us or the people around us? Answer number one, point number one. First, we confess the supremacy of God's justice. His justice. Okay, look back at verse two. What's the first thing the psalmist does In the face of grave injustice. Verse 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Friends, a biblical response to prolonged injustice committed against us or people around us. That response begins with a very simple but profoundly important confession. And that's this. There is one judge of the earth and it's not you. And it's not me. It's King Jesus. When he calls upon God as judge of all the earth, the psalmist clearly revokes any personal claim to the title. So we know, what do we know? We know that our creator freely, wisely delegates some of his authority to his creatures, parents in the home, elders in the church, officials in government, but but the psalmist is dead right. Right? Every one of us, every human being is ultimately accountable to God. So, what do we have going on? We, we've got grave injustice being committed against the psalmist and the people around him, but he doesn't begin his response the way we often begin. He doesn't file a lawsuit, he doesn't start a nonprofit, he doesn't jump onto social media to gather sympathy from the masses. Am I saying those things are wrong? No, I'm saying they are not first. What does he do? Verse 2. He cries out to the Lord of the universe, the judge of all the earth, and he pleads with him to reveal his glory by avenging the wicked. And I would argue that, that nearly every unbiblical response to injustice can be traced back to a problem at this point. Why do I say that? Well, for the simple reason that I want to be the judge of the kingdom of me. I don't think I'm alone. I just happen to be the one on stage talking about it. And if, if you dare violate my preferences or my rules, which of course revolve all around me, then look out. I will either ream you out verbally or give you the silent treatment or better yet, I will issue you some customized combination of both of them. And either way, I'll make sure it's crystal clear that you're in the doghouse. And that I've put you there because you ask for it. And I'm going to use every power within me to make sure you suffer at least as much as you caused me to suffer. I'm going to retaliate, plain and simple. And to whatever degree, I'm not alone, and that temptation isn't unique to me, friends. We need to be humbled. We need to be humbled by the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where he says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Friend, God does not need your help. He doesn't need your help. He is quite capable of avenging every injustice ever committed against you or the people around you because the acts of injustice committed against us are not just attacks on us. They're attacks on him. Point number two. We not only confess the supremacy of his justice, we lament the violation of his justice. Look at verse three. The last word in three is especially important. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked? How long shall the wicked exult? To exalt is to what? To to exalt is to to revel, to glory, to find pleasure in something. So what are the wicked exalting? Well, they're exalting in the apparent success of their oppressive words, their oppressive deeds in achieving their arrogant aims. So verses 4 and 7 fill out the picture here. What are they doing? They're crushing, they're afflicting, they're killing, and they're murdering the people around them. But notice they're not just doing that to people in general, they're doing that to God's people. Look at verse 5. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. And not just the people in general, or people of God in general, but the most vulnerable members of Israelite society in particular. Who are those people? Widows, sojourners, and orphans. The three groups of people that God explicitly commanded Israel to protect. Having crushed them, what do the perpetrators of injustice conclude? Look at verse 7. The Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob doesn't perceive. They're, They're mocking God. Right? They're saying, I'm not accountable to anybody outside myself. And in the very next section, the psalmist is going to rebuke them to their face with that claim. But before we go there, consider the point he's making here. What's he arguing? Well, he's agreeing that, that acts of grave injustice do affect and harm real people. I mean, some of them were being killed and murdered as a result. But the psalmist knows something that the wicked do not. And therefore, he laments something that the wicked cannot. What's that? Lord, their sin is ultimately against you. It's the same thing in prodigal son. Luke 15 realized when he came to his senses and declared, Father, I have sinned, what? Against heaven and before you. So so the acts of injustice here, when he refers to Lord, they're crushing your people, your heritage, aren't just committed against Men, they're not just violating the dignity of man. They're they're a violation of the justice of God. They're an affront to the glory of God. It's why back in verse 1, the psalmist begins by crying out, O God of vengeance, shine forth. What's he telling God to do when he says, God of vengeance, shine forth? He's saying, God, defend the glory of your name by repaying the proud with what they deserve. Prove to them that you do see that you do hear he's processing the injustice around him not just in terms of its effect on people though that is real but in terms of its assault on the glory of God I find that challenging because so often in our laments in the face of injustice friends we are woefully man centered we, we fixate we Right? On, on the violation of, of our rights, our dignity, our privileges. And, and we want to lament those things to the Lord. But, but let's be very careful, especially in the face of personal injustice, to, to lament with even greater sorrow the violation of God's law and God's justice and God's glory. Taking refuge in a God of justice in the face of injustice necessarily involves remembering that every sin committed against us is first and foremost a sin against him. And if you can remember that, friend, it will go a long way in helping you resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands. It really will. Their battle ultimately isn't with you. It's with the Lord. Because we're his people. And we're his heritage. And to sin against us, if you're a Christian, is to sin against him. So we confess the supremacy of God's justice. We lament the violation of God's justice. Point number three, how do we respond? We submit to the revelation of his justice. Look here at verses 12 and 13. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. At first, that could seem like a really strange thing to put in the middle of a song of lament. What are you talking about? Blessed is the man. But that's exceedingly helpful, friend. Because those two verses, 12 and 13, they refocus our attention on our primary responsibility in the middle of injustice. You know what that is? It's obeying the Lord. It's obeying the Lord. It is really easy for suffering, especially the suffering of injustice, to become an excuse for disobedience. What do I mean by that? Well, we get weary, we grow tired. We start to feel like God is is missing in action. And we we wonder if this whole following Jesus thing is really worth it. I mean, if if this is how God's going to let people treat me, then why am I even trying to follow him? I mean, why not just throw in my lot with the wicked? I mean, it won't be as bad as there, but why don't I just start doing whatever makes me feel good? At least that'll take the edge off the pain of this injustice that's just not going away. We go there. And certainly all suffering is painful, and suffering at the hand of wicked people who don't fear God is especially painful. But friends, what the Word of God is reminding us of here is that even in the very teeth of injustice, there remains a sweet blessing for obeying the Lord. A sweet blessing that not even the greatest injustice imaginable can take away from you. So verse 12 tells us that that this experience of blessing, even in the face of injustice, is is connected to two things. The discipline of the Lord, blessed is the man whom you discipline, and the law of the Lord, whom you teach out of your law. So so what is the discipline of the Lord? What's the process by which God uses even painful experiences, including the trial of injustice, to, to make us more like himself? James 1 verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that this testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the discipline of the Lord. What's the law of the Lord? Well, The law of the Lord is the written revelation of God's justice, God's moral standard of right and wrong in the pages of his word. So through the Bible, God reveals to us what he's like and the kind of life that is consistent or inconsistent with his moral character. Okay, Now hang with me here. Follow this. Exactly what sort of blessing does the discipline of the Lord and the law of the Lord give to those who are willing to submit to both of them? Look at verse 13. It's the blessing, verse 13, of rest from days of trouble. Now isn't that interesting? What does he mean by that? Well, well, we know from the end of verse 13 that he doesn't mean deliverance from the pain of injustice. Why not? Well, because until the final judgment, until a pit is dug for the wicked, sin will continue to exist And therefore, the pain of injustice will continue to remain. So so if rest from days of trouble isn't deliverance from all the sorrow of injustice, well, then what is it? Well, Friend, I think it's a powerful reminder from the psalmist that the sorrow of injustice doesn't change the significance of even the smallest acts of obedience or disobedience in your life. What do I mean by that? The path of obedience is always a path of spiritual rest. Without fail. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it always yields a profound calmness and quietness of soul, the fruit of a deep and abiding intimacy with the Lord. Even if the pain of injustice never goes way. And in, and in contrast to that, the path of disobedience is always a path of spiritual trouble. Okay, that path yields a growing anxiety and, and distress of soul. It, it compounds the sorrow of injustice with the despair of life apart from relationship with God. So what's the bottom line here? Well, we're being reminded that the choice we make, even when we're experiencing injustice, as to whether we will obey the Lord in the face of that or disobey the Lord in the face of that, that choice always has real consequences. And those consequences aren't somehow trumped by severe oppression. So think of it this way. That the more significant the injustice being worked against you grows, the more it grows, the more it increases, the more significant even the smallest acts of obedience in your life become. And many times, that's all we can do. Small acts of Obedience, and with even those small acts, comes great blessing from God. His point is that we are not to merely tell the world that the life around us and the way people are living and acting is wrong. But we're to show them the way life ought to be how it should be lived, what justice looks like through the way we obey the Lord. So we don't just lament the violations of his justice, but we submit ourselves through our obedience to the revelation of his justice. Take heart, friend, that you don't allow the pain of your suffering to distract you from obeying God. Here's the fourth point, the final answer on which we will linger for a bit. How do we take refuge in the God of justice in the face of injustice? Point number four, we cling to the consolations of his justice. We confess the supremacy of his justice. We lament the violations of his justice. We submit to the revelation of his justice. And finally, we cling to his consolations. Look at verse 19. In many ways, this is the summit of the entire psalm. The logic of the whole thing. When the cares of my heart are many, look there, your consolations cheer my soul. Whose consolations is he talking about? If you look at verse 18, it's it's the Lord's consolations. Right? So, so when we are experiencing the pain of injustice, God tells us to shape up And have a little more faith. No he doesn't. (laughs) No he doesn't. What does he do? He consoles us. See that? He he comforts us. He, He meets us exactly at the point of our need. So think of it this way. The intensity of our cares is matched by the intensity of his consolations. That's his point but not just matched, so superseded, so overwhelmed. The consolations of the Lord so exceed the many cares that the net result of it is joy. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. That's not a joy in the absence of cares, church. That's a joy in the presence of many cares, lest you think he's not talking about your situation. So, what are these consolations? What are they? Well, they are precisely what the Lord reveals about himself in all the verses before verse 19 and after verse 19. Remember I said it's like the summit of the psalm. Everything before, everything after, it's connected. So I'm going to give you just three categories of consolation that we need to cling to in the face of injustice. First, the Lord's knowledge of man is perfect. We skipped over verse 7 earlier. Look back there now with me. Verse 7. When the wicked prosper, what do they conclude? The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. To which the psalmist immediately replies in verse 8, well, perceive this. The last word of verse 7 is also the very first word in Hebrew of verse 8. The wicked say, God doesn't perceive. The psalmist says, perceive this. Perceive what? Understand this, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He's saying, to all of you who just said that, the God of Jacob doesn't see, the Lord doesn't see, the Lord doesn't perceive. That is foolishness. Why is that foolish? Why is it wrong to conclude that because people seem to get away with injustice, that therefore they must be flying under the divine radar? (laughs) Well, here's where the logic of verses 9 through 11 is so powerful. So consider the gift of hearing, he says. What has God done? God has designed all the necessary bones and nerves and membranes. He's he's woven every detail about your ear into your DNA. And you want to tell me that the God who could do that is deaf? I don't think so. How about the gift of sight? Who formed the eye? Who who had the wisdom to create the optic nerve? That thing's incredible. You know, it enables us to to discern minute differences in in color and and depth. Who, Who designed the mind, by the way, to be able to combine two visual images into one seamless sight? Does it make sense to conclude that the God who would do all that... He's blind? If he can discipline entire nations, verse 10, do you think it's hard for him to rebuke a wicked individual? Does it make any sense to believe that the God who gave us our entire mental ability to retain information and acquire knowledge has no knowledge of our thoughts? That's madness, the psalmist says. That's craziness. I mean, it's the height of folly. Only a fool would refuse to believe the biblical doctrine of creation and all its entailments. And yet, it is precisely that doctrine, friend, the doctrine of creation that assures the suffering people of God that the Lord does see, the Lord does hear, He knows the thoughts of the wicked. He knows the acts of sin that have been committed against you that you have never told anyone about. He knows them all to their smallest, most painful detail. And in due time, he will rebuke them to their face. Friend, if you came this morning looking for a reason to fear the Lord God, you just got it. He knows everything. Every act of injustice you've ever committed, every act of injustice committed against you, he's watching, he's counting, he does not forget. And even now, if you were in Christ, he speaks over you the same words that he spoke over Israel in Exodus 2.24 as she languished in slavery. And God heard their groaning. He heard. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Christian, God, your God, sees you. And he knows you. And that includes every act of wickedness ever taken against you since the day you were born. That is comforting. That's comforting. It's our first consolation and the first reason we know that his righteous judgments will prevail. Here's the second It's not just that the Lord's knowledge of man is perfect. Second, the Lord's love for his people is unwavering. Look at verse 17. So on the heels of crying out for deliverance from the wicked in verse 16, he he does something. He recalls his former experience in times of trouble. We've seen this in the Psalms before. He goes historical, as I like to say. And what does he see? Verse 17, if the Lord had not been my help... In times of old, my soul then would soon have lived in the land of silence. Translation, died. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Is that your story, friend? He's recalling all the ways God's been faithful to him over many years. And the record of God's faithfulness forces him to confess to his own soul and to all of us who are reading that the God of Israel doesn't just know us, but he cares for us. He loves us. You are not a data point in a file in his hard drive somewhere. He carries you on his heart. Because he loves you. And he holds you up with arms of steadfast love and mercy. I, I had an experience at the playground recently that, that I, I think just vividly illustrated this. I have a two-year-old boy, soon to be three, named Tyler. And Tyler wanted to walk across one of those swinging bridges. You know, ropes with wood. And they go this way and they go this way all at the same time. And he wanted to do it like a big boy his words. He just wants to do all life like a big boy. So he starts gingerly walking across the bridge and as soon as he gets ready to cross the gap from the moving bridge to the fixed tower, his feet slipped. He fell off the bridge, he dropped four feet and cracked his head on the ground. Actually, he didn't. I made that up. His feet slipped, but he didn't fall, (laughs) because I had his hands. I knew he couldn't make it across by himself, because I'm his dad, and I love him dearly. So I gripped both his hands and said, you can do it, buddy. Let's walk across the bridge like a big boy. And when he slipped, I held him up. And he was scared, but he didn't fall. And because I refused to let go of his hands, he walked that bridge over and over and over and over again. Church, that's exactly what the steadfast love of God is doing for you right now. It's exactly what it's doing. It's holding you up, okay? It's held you up since the day you became a Christian. Think about what a comfort that is. When, when you feel like your feet are slipping, when your faith is failing, the loyal love of God refuses to let you go. I mean, notice, notice the psalmist's testimony didn't go like this. Notice this. He didn't say, when I thought, my foot slips I remembered your steadfast love. I repented of doubting your goodness. I fixed my eyes on Jesus like the preacher said, and I kept going. No, what does it say? When I thought my foot slips, when all I felt, all I was aware of was my weakness, my failures, my inadequacy, when all I could perceive is fear and imminent danger, and I'm not even aware of you. What's going on? Your steadfast love is holding me up. That's his story. Friend, if you're in Christ, That's your story too. He didn't hold himself up. God held him up. God sustained him. God kept him. And that record of past faithfulness brought great consolation in the midst of present injustice. God doesn't just know you, Christian. He loves you. And his love for you isn't going to fail when every other source of help has. I love how Charles Spurgeon summarizes this point. Listen to these wise words. If we could find friends elsewhere, it may be our God would not be so dear to us. But when after calling upon heaven and earth to help, we meet with no succor but such as comes from the eternal arm, we are led to prize our God and rest upon him with undivided trust. Notice this. Never. Never is the soul safer or more at rest than when all other helpers failing, she leans upon the Lord alone. Amen. And the reason that's true is because of verse 14. What? Because the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. His love for you, Christian, is unwavering. His knowledge of man is perfect. That consoles us. His love for us is unwavering. That even more consoles us. Here's the final consolation. We'll end with this the Lord's judgment of the wicked is guaranteed. Guaranteed. Look back at verse 14. What you see in 14 is actually all over the Bible. If you've read through the Old Testament, God promises again and again to not forsake his people, not abandon his heritage in all kinds of ways. And verse 15 is a case in point of how he will never fail on what he's promised in verse 14. So look at 15. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. What's he saying? He's saying there's a day coming, friend. A day guaranteed by nothing less than the covenant faithfulness of God Himself. When justice won't just bend toward the righteous, it will return to the righteous. It will be received and experienced by the people of God in all its fullness. And the final verse of this psalm, verse 23, tells us exactly how God's going to make that happen. So so speaking of the perpetrators of injustice, he says, the Lord will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Friend, if that is a hard verse for you to read, you are in good company. But if any part of you wonders if that is a true verse because it is a hard verse, then hear this. The justice of God demands that. The holiness of God requires that. The sinfulness of sin, including every unrepentant act of injustice, demands that. It's why Alan Ross got it right when he said this. The kingdom of evil cannot coexist with the kingdom of God. It must come to an end. And until a pit is dug for the wicked, the kingdom of evil and injustice will continue to prosper. But know this, it is the prosperity of a convict on death row. Its days are numbered. And one day in the future, the Lord himself will avenge every act of wickedness and injustice committed against his people. His justice, his vengeance is like the sun. It's kind of hard to see right now outside. It's especially hard in the middle of the night. And last night was a really long night. But the fact you can't see it doesn't make it any less real. The justice of God is like that. We, we simply have to wait for it. For as the dark of night eventually gives way to the brilliance of day, friends, so too this present hour of injustice will eventually give way to the eternity of the righteousness and justice of God. So where have we come from? Well, we've been challenged In the face of grave injustice, to take refuge in the God of justice because his righteous judgments will prevail. And we know that because his knowledge of man is perfect, his love for his people is unwavering, and his judgment of the wicked is guaranteed. It is for those reasons in verse 22 that he says to us, I am your stronghold and the rock of your refuge. For those reasons, you can cast the weight of every injustice committed against you on him, the God of vengeance, for he will repay to the proud what they deserve. The wicked will not exalt forever. So, why is God waiting? 2 Peter 3.8 Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you realize, friend, that's not just a word to the wicked. That's a word to the righteous. Righteous. Wait for divine justice to prevail, listen to this, is not a time for arrogant brooding over the destruction of our enemies. It is a time for humble self-examination and repentance, knowing that we too will be judged for the deeds we have committed in the body and God shows no partiality. He doesn't avenge some sins and wink at others. And no sin committed against us, no matter how great, ever undoes or offsets or neutralizes the reality of our own sin against the Lord. And it's for our sin, friend, that we are responsible and will be held accountable. And thankfully, the answer to both the sin of the wicked and the sin of the righteous is exactly the same. What's that? Flee to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus for complete and total forgiveness of your sin. And look to Jesus for complete and total vindication of all the sin committed against you. For know this, church the wrath of God against every sin committed from the foundation of the world will either be poured out on the crucified Son of God or poured out on the wicked who refuse to repent. Either way, the guilty are never unpunished. In light of that, fear God, refuse to take vengeance yourself, and when you are suffering at the face of injustice, Take refuge in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we sing one final song that you would help us to do just that, what your word has exhorted us to do, and take refuge in you, the God of justice. I pray that the consolations in this psalm would address point by point, line after line, detail by detail, experience after experience of every injustice we have ever experienced. And I pray, Father, as we sing now, whether with tears of sorrow or a smile of confidence, that we can lament the injustice in this world and against us To you, knowing that you are indeed the God of vengeance, and your righteous judgments will not fail to prevail. Amen.